0: To Second Peter. If you are using a Pew Bible, it's on page one thousand two hundred and fifteen. Second Peter chapter 1, and I'm going to read from verse 1 through 7, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received the faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, this morning I just ask you as we again look at your word, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would illuminate your word to us, make it real to us, make it practical to us, make it apply to us, Lord, in a very specific way, so, Lord, we would do what it says, and we would be the kind of people that the Spirit of God is actually making into the image of Christ. So any obstacles, any things that are going to hinder us today, please remove for the very purpose of your word coming to our heart without any distractions. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, just to remind you from last time in this text, this is what we must not forget. We must not forget that you are not lacking anything to grow in Christlikeness. You have everything you need for life and godliness. Verse number 3. Everything pertaining to life and godliness. That the source of divine power is from Jesus. That this divine power is expressed in a godly life. And that you do not do it alone. Philippians tells us, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You're not alone. Also not to forget that the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit helps us to replace sinful habits with godly habits. That we must not forget that it is not just human effort, but grace-motivated effort. It is not effort apart from the Holy Spirit, it is effort in cooperation with the Holy Spirit. We have the promise of being like Christ. Verse 4, by these, he has granted, granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. Now, from last week, what that meant is that he actually, Christ's attributes of divine majesty and moral goodness have been instrumental in giving believers not only what they need for a godly life, but that through these attributes of his own glory and goodness that Christ has provided for the fulfillment of the promises. And of course, the fulfillment of the promises include believers becoming sharers of the richest of all treasures on this earth. And that is the nature and the life of God. And, of course, that also believers receive a remarkable privilege while we're on this earth, and that privilege is to actually enjoy intimacy with the God who created the universe through Christ Jesus. And so the the two benefits of the promises come in verse number four, where there's a positive benefit, And the positive benefit is actual participation in the divine nature where it says, For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. But remember, Scripture does not say you have the divine nature. It says you participate in the divine nature. And to participate in the divine nature means that the Christian shares in God's own character that he is allowing certain attributes to be remade in us that reflect the attributes of God himself. Not all of them, only the ones that are communicated through us as humans. See, the Apostle Peter also does not say that we possess the divine nature in its totality. And therefore, we become sinless. We never become sinless. We're always dealing with sin. So participation in the divine nature is the reception of an ethical nature like God's, which then leads to holiness and godliness, that Christians are given an ethical desire to live for our Lord and to do so with a holy desire and a holy purity and a holy goodness. Now, at the same time, there's a negative benefit, and that does definitely show the tension that's in the Christian life. Once a believer trusts in Christ, there is a tension that comes in our life because the tension is between the old nature and the new man, what God wants us to do and what we're used to doing in the old person. So the negative benefit that is concurrent with the desire to participate in the divine nature is also the escape from corruption in the world caused by desire. And there is the tension of the Christian life. In verse number four, it says, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. And of course, this is corruption in the world because of desire, because of sinful desire, because of the fall of man into sin. And, of course, sin came between man and God, and God's own divine characteristics that were given to man at the beginning were lost. Sin shattered the image of God created in, in us and stamped upon us, and the part of man that had communion with God absolutely completely died at the fall. And we bear that deadness when we're born into the world, having no reference to God once we are born into the world. All we have reference to is our own sinful desires. From young to old, we have sinful desires to do what we want to do and not what God wants to do, not what God laid out for us to do. So since that time, man has been running from God and he is now governed by sinful desires and panders to that, those sinful desires of his lower nature. So sinful desire is at the root of all moral corruption in the world. Because of moral corruption in the world, it's subject to decay. It's dying. We're dying. The world is dying. Everything is dying because of sin, because of the curse of sin in the world. So that means that the the escape here in verse number 4 is the escape from corruption that remains in this old world. So the Christians as as they grow in holiness see clearly more than ever before that they need to separate themselves from the moral corruption that is so much a part of this fallen world, and so much a part of our fallen nature. So God restores us in salvation. He makes us spiritually alive. He creates us after the image of the perfect man, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing to us right now for all those who are in Christ. So then a a Christian's participation in the divine nature gives believers this new ability to resist sin through union with Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit along with the scriptures. That means that the desire is that the flesh that we now have, the flesh, this sinful old man, needs to be weakened. And the desire to obey the Holy Spirit and to please Jesus Christ needs to be strengthened. And, of course, our desires that come from our heart need to be strengthened, so we want the pattern of our life to be godly, to be holy. And it's already been said that along with Christ's righteousness, that he gives us in salvation where he makes us right with God, that's what he's done. He also gives to the believer an ethical righteousness, a practical righteousness, a righteousness that actually we live on this earth. He gives that, we receive that at salvation, and that means that the believer's nature is being transformed so that he and she will manifest the character of God. That will take place in a real believer. So this Lord's Day, the admonition is, to use the awesome power available to you and I to grow in godliness. We saw in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, what God has done. That is the things that have already been done for us by God. That's taken place already. Today, and I'll just start today, I probably won't even get out of verse five today. Now in Second Peter chapter five, verse chapter one, verse five through nine, the scripture emphasizes, and I want to drive this home to you, the human side of salvation. Now that does not suggest any form of work salvation. However true faith however true faith must lead to works. The epistle of James tells us, even so faith, if it has no works, is dead by itself. So faith always produces works. Always. But works comes after one's initial salvation to Christ, not before it. Works are the fruit of salvation. So this morning, we're going to look at at least two things, but we're going to look at other scripture too. The believers, that believers have initially a twofold responsibility before we even get into defining what that is in detail, this must come first. And the first responsibility believers are to have is a diligent attitude toward your own spiritual growth. Now, look at verse number 5. It says this in verse number 5. Now, for this reason, for this very reason, also apply all diligence in your faith. Of course, let me just go back before the comma. Apply all diligence. Now, I I want to look at that for a minute because we are not to sit back at this point and wait for God. God already demands an intense work ethic in his children. We cannot have, in other words, a lackadaisical attitude toward godliness, towards growth in Christ. If there is that kind of attitude, it is an infection that must be healed and ultimately removed. We cannot miss the importance of the phrase all diligence. It actually literally means to bring every effort to this new life you have in Christ, to exert yourself in this new life you have in Christ, and maybe in modern-day vernacular we can say to do your very best at being a Christian. Now, some people may not think that we have that responsibility, that we some may think that God does it all, and we just kind of like go with the flow. No, that's not what it's saying in Scripture. It's it's saying to us, listen, Christians are to take the human side of salvation very seriously by putting strenuous effort into your spiritual development. That is the goal of all Christians. That's the goal of all believers. Now, but let me let me just back up for a minute and start with the bare bones basics. And what I mean by that is that there are three things that we must all be clear about. And here's the first thing. We must be clear that we are actual Christians. Make sure that you are a Christian to begin with. Or we couldn't even go any further in this passage. That you have the Holy Spirit in you that enables you to grow. Remember, if there... No salvation means no spirit, which means you are not plugged into the source. In fact, if you want a passage of Scripture, I have one for you. Romans chapter 8 and verse number 9. It'd be good for you to look at that. Look what it says there. In Romans 8 9, it says, However... You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. You know, that means, that means if you have no spirit, then you do not, you cannot participate in the divine nature. You are still spiritually dead in your trespasses and sin, so you will not understand what I'm going to preach let alone put it into practice. In other words, you need to be born again first. got to start there. A second thing that we're getting back to the bare bones basic is this. You must use the means of grace available to all Christians in order to cultivate the Spirit's power in your life. Now, you heard it before, but again, basics. The study of God's word, the reading of God's word, the meditating on God's word, fellowship with believers, the breaking of bread in the Lord's table and with each other, prayer, service, using your gifts, and spiritual worship. Well, I have a scripture for you on this one, too. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. All right, so these are non-negotiable for the Christians in order to grow to spiritual maturity. Without them, it cannot happen. And then the third thing is this. You must be responsible to discipline yourself in godliness. Now, I all would like you to turn to this passage of Scripture in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. And just remind you what it is saying here in Second Peter. That in verse 5 it says that for this very reason also applying all diligence. I'm explaining what that means, all diligence. Because the Apostle Paul was writing about godliness to a young pastor named Timothy. And he says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, notice, he says, but have nothing to do with worldly fables, fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, for bodily discipline is only of little profit. But godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for this present life and also for life to come. Now, if that doesn't motivate you to hold in front of you godliness as a goal, just like if you're going to work out physically, you just don't look at the weights and hope you develop muscle. No, you got to actually exert yourself, right? You have to put yourself in the equation. In fact, the interesting thing about the Greek word Paul used for discipline in verse number 8 is... This. It means it is gymnasium. We get the word gymnasium, gymnastics. I don't know of any sport that is more strenuous than gymna- gymnastics. You know, walking the beam and flipping and, you know, the iron cross on the rings and all those kind of things. It's It's, see, the passage is actually. Related to athletics, an athlete becomes better and more skilled only after hard practice. I have enjoyed reading Muscle Magazine since I was a teenager. Reading about weightlifting motivated me to get into the gym and try out the exercises. When starting off, I quickly realized that weightlifting was not for the faint of heart. A weightlifter must start off with light weights, but gradually over months and years add heavier and heavier weights in order to build muscle. I also discovered that regular training was vital in order to achieve even the slightest results. A weightlifter cannot decide this week, I think I'll lift for six hours on Friday and then forget about it for the next six weeks. No, an athlete must practice regularly. Some work out every day. Some work out five times a week. Some work out three times a week. They must train, though. They must train to achieve results, to grow stronger and better. Along with this regular schedule, an athlete also must learn More and more about his sport, nutrition, and make sure that they're living a healthy life. If you don't do those things, you don't get results. In other words, Christians, all Christians, you have an automatic gym membership when you become a believer. You have a gym membership in which you get into the gym and train. It says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Is that not the goal? Train to participate in the divine nature. Applying all diligence, bring every effort, exert yourself for the purpose of godliness. That's our responsibility. That's what Peter is telling his readers. Now, maybe you're here today thinking, you know, I, I want this year to be a year that I really grow spiritually. I want to be what God wants me to be. In the past, I've 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 been fired up to see real change in my life, but honestly, nothing significant has taken place. Oh, oh, there, there's some change, some growth, some blessing, but not the kind I earnestly would like to see. Now, if you have from time to time been thinking something like this, well, you are not alone. Because I believe all believers think this. Because they realize how much they fall short of what God wants them to be. See, the danger, though, is that you will try to find some other spiritual experience to fill the gap than what God requires and Satan will provide you one. Or you'll throw up your hands and say, I give up. I can't do this. Don't don't go there. Don't give up hope. Run back to the scripture and get God's mind on the matter. So, so why do you think you have failed in your attempt to be godly? Well, the major reason may be some sin that you're clinging to that has prevented you moving forward in likeness. However, the problem may not be a besetting sin. The problem may be that you have not understood what the Bible says about how to grow spiritually. Or the problem may be that you have sought and tried to obtain instant godliness and have failed again and again. Brethren, there are no instant gains without diligence and without discipline. It is not wrong for believers to genuinely examine themselves to see whether they're in the faith. It actually tells us that in Corinthians chapter 15 to make sure that you're in the faith. Also, it's appropriate for all believers from time to time to honestly examine whether they are living a life of faith. It's good for believers to ask themselves, am I storing up in my mind the truths of God's word? Am I living by them? Have I actually developed an appetite for more solid, in-depth food of God's word? Is my growth progressing, or am I going backwards? Has my growth been arrested by some destructive weeds and thorns of anxiety and materialism or some sin that has lodged in my heart that has prevented me from moving forward? That's a possibility, because worry and greed are enemies of the word. They betray a failure to trust in God and God's fatherly care for us. But And remember this, that spiritual security does not depend on a clear recollection of the moment of your conversion only. It has to do with the issue of fruit. See, by your fruits, by God's love for you, by what God has already done for you and given to you and his grasp on you, and also, discipline is the secret of godliness. The term discipline has just about disappeared from Christian vocabulary and culture. Yet there's no other way to attain godliness than, of course, Discipline is the path to godliness. And God intends for all his children to be godly. It means each day a godly person leads a life that reflects God. A godly person is growing in their desire to please God, in their being, in their thinking, in their speaking, in their doing, and even, yes, in their feelings, because all those lead into how I feel. Oftentimes we feel wrong because we've been thinking wrong. We've been meditating on things that are opposite of what God wants you to meditate on, and therefore it bears that result of bad feelings, bad thoughts. Now, look back at 2 Peter again, and I want you to notice in 2 Peter chapter 2, in verse number 14, Peter speaks about people whose heart whose hearts are trained in greed. Speaking of the false teachers, look what he says in 2 Peter 2.14. Having eyes full of adultery and never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, and then notice, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. You know that word trained right there? You know what the word is? gymnaso, gymnasium. right? It means that that the heart has been exercised in greed and is one that is faithfully practicing greed so that greed becomes as natural as breathing. The false teachers have developed a habit capability. They do it without thinking. The false teachers habitually behave greedily. This means that if we are going to attain a heart of, of godliness, we must exercise discipline. We need to get into the spiritual dr- gym and start there and start training and keep training until we develop a habit, capability for godliness. That once we habitually have sinned, now as Christians we are to habitually live righteously. We get to the point where that becomes who we are, what we do, because the word of God is transforming us and making us like Christ. It's like what it says in Romans chapter 8, in verse 4. Listen what it says. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who? Do not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. So God's provided it for us. Now, don't misunderstand. There's no such thing as instant godliness. We do live in a culture that wants things instantly, and people want instant godliness too. They want someone to give them three ways, three steps to godliness. That's what they want. And if I get that, then maybe I could do it. But God did not design our sanctification like that. The biblical way to godliness is not easy, it is not simple, but it is a solid way. And hopefully, the diagnosis in your life will not be what it says in Hebrews chapter 5. And what is that? That you never got past the rudiments or the basics of Christianity 101, where it says this, you're still on the ABCs. It says you need, again, for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. Also, the diagnosis wouldn't be that you need to be bottle-fed with milk. The only ones who use milk are babies and those who are ill. See, you need milk like a little baby because you cannot take in solid food yet become to become stronger. Like it says in Hebrews, you have you have come to need milk and not solid food, or that your decisions and behavior display spiritual ignorance like little children who do not know the difference between right and wrong. Hebrews 5.13, for everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. So what's the solution to the problem? Get into the spiritual gymnasium. Just like it says in Hebrews 5, 14, but solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So again, the term trained, you got it. You guessed it. It's the word gymnasium, right? It means to exercise it vigorously. And so as one becomes accustomed to the Word of God by constant use, the mind then makes correct judgments and the desires of our heart are to live for godliness. So the Bible also helps us to understand that discipline really has three elements to it. The first element of discipline, biblical discipline, is that it starts with self-evaluation. It starts right there. In other words, you must become aware of your life patterns. You must evaluate them by the word of God. You must determine whether your patterns of living are according to the old ways or toward godliness. The old sinful ways, as they are discovered, must be replaced by new patterns from God's word. The Holy Spirit doesn't zap instant holiness into us apart from the scriptures. In fact, the Holy Spirit ordinarily works through the word of God. That's how he works. For if we want to discipline ourselves towards godliness a most essential factor is a regular study of God's Word in order to make application of the principles to our own particular problems and behaviors that need to change. So it is by the willing, prayerful, persistent obedience to the requirement of Scripture that godly patterns are developed and, of course, come to be part of us. I like what Paul said in Second Timothy. He says, all scripture, of course, is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good what? Work. So scripture, again, tells us, listen, you and I need to be examining ourselves to see where we're at. Second element that goes with discipline is discipline includes crucifixion. See, the old sinful ways must not be fed. The old sinful ways must be put to death. Romans 8, chapter 13. Romans chapter 8, verse 13 says this, and if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if you are, by the Spirit, putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Every day, by the guidance and strength of the Holy Spirit, We are crucifying the old sinful ways. First, by saying no. I'm not going there. You say no to the old rebel inside of you. Nope, I'm not doing that anymore. This is what God wants me to do. I'm not going that way anymore. So you're telling yourself every day, no, sorry. Temptation pops up. It becomes powerful to you. It starts getting your imagination going, and you say to it, you know what? I'm not going there. I'm going to discipline myself to godly in godliness and therefore I'm going to put to death that particular thought, that particular desire and I am going to lay it aside until it dies and not feed it again. So it involves denying the self. Jesus commanded his disciples and he he was telling all of them this, if anyone If anyone comes after me, if anyone wants to follow me, this is what he tells them. You must deny yourself and take up his cross and follow him. Now, Jesus did not mean denying yourself something Rather, Jesus insisted that Christians must deny the self within them. By the self, he meant the old desires, the old ways, the old practices, the old patterns that were acquired before conversion. The old life that was disciplined towards ungodliness, not towards godliness. So, the phrase take up the cross identifies the battle, the struggle as a believer grows in Christ's likeness. The cross is the instrument of death. Taking up the cross does not mean carrying some heavy burden or enduring some trial or some obnoxious person. No. Taking up the cross means going to the place of death. It means putting to death the old man and the old life patterns. Scripture says we are to put off the old and put on the new. That Christians, as they continue to do that, say no to the self and yes to Christ every day until one by one. All the old habitual ways are replaced by new ones. That's what God's going to do. But you have to discipline yourself. God's given you everything. He's given you all everything you need to do that. And you, you are to discipline yourself. So the Holy Spirit enables a believer to put off the old man and put on the new man. And then, of course, there's a third element of discipline, and that element is practice. We practice following Jesus Christ in the new ways by the guidance of God's spirit and what he provides in the word of God. Again, the Hebrews passage of scripture, it says, "And but solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Continual daily effort in and is really the elemental Essentials of the Christian discipline. Until godlike behavioral changes is no longer something you have to do. It's something you become. It's something you are. That's your being, who you become. And of course, the second responsibility, which I'll really pick up more next week, found back in Second Peter. Chapter 1 and verse number 5, he says, For this very reason, also applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence and in your moral excellence, knowledge. That word, again, supply, a very strong word. It's an imperative. It's a command in Scripture. It is a command with an accumulative force for a believer to supplement their faith, to add to their faith. Another way of of thinking of this command is to bring alongside what God has already done for you, every ounce of determination you can muster and go forward to pursue the goal of godliness. So Christians are called to express in action the nature of God that has been created in us. One of my favorite pastor preachers, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, He has been with the Lord since 1980. Has left us a wealth of material, and he is here in our passage. He has given us helpful image by using a farm as the model, and this is what he said: We are given the farm by God's grace. We are given the implements and the tools and all that is necessary. We are given the seed. What we are called upon to do is to farm. It is no use telling a man to farm if he has not a farm. If he is without land, without seed, without tools, nothing can be done. But all these are given unto us, and therefore, having received them, we are asked to farm the lot of plan, the lot of land that God's given us, right? And that means to be diligent, to apply to our faith diligence, discipline. So what do we do? We must add to what God has given us. We must increase in it. We must proceed to grow in it. Diligence plus addition to faith, Equals spiritual growth and godliness. That's the math. Add to your faith what? Eight Christian qualities. Eight Christian qualities. And we're going to look at that next week. And what are they? Moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. That's what we are to add to the faith that God's given us. And as we do that and put the effort in to do that, you can't sit there in the pew and fold your arms and think it's going to happen. And I tell people all the time, remember, we are not sitting in the stands. We are in the game. We are in the game, right? So don't think that the Christian life is you sit there like this and it's all going to come to you. No. God says that's not the way it's happening. All you got to do is follow my word, discipline yourself. You want to be strong physically? Go to the gym and make yourself strong, right? You're not going to do it by sitting behind a TV and using the clicker all day, right? Having your chips and your soda or whatever there. You're not going to, that, nothing's going to happen there. You're just going to get bigger in other places you don't want to. And the same thing, we need some really strong believers, godly people, know how to be godly, know how to be holy, and, and how to pursue it. And all you got to do is stick to the Word of God, and it will happen. Because God's given us everything to farm our little land. So let's take what he's given us and use it and become strong, right? And it doesn't matter how old you are, young people. This applies to you, too. Because the Bible says don't let anyone look down on your youth. You can flee sin and pursue righteousness. And so you become a very strong model to those who don't know how to do that. So I pray that you just evaluate yourself. Where are you at today? How have you grown today? This is a new year. You can make decisions to do great things in your spiritual progress. And I pray that you would do that. And we help each other do that. Amen? Now we have the Lord's table, and I just want to explain the Lord's table a little bit. The Lord's table is, first of all, there are certain beneficial effects that we do receive from the Lord's table. Number one is that believers are to again examine themselves, uh, and of course that means uh, take a look, a realistic look at yourself, and think about how you're doing inside your heart. Are you are you really living for yourself in selfishness and greed and bitterness or, or uncleanness and doing completely opposite? You know, than the Lord wants you to, then that has to be confessed to the Lord and brought before him because the blood of Christ is is available to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Also, through this ordinance, we bear the public testimony of our faith in Christ who died uh, for our sins. No one really has the right to participate in this ordinance unless they believe and have been redeemed by the blood of Christ and have followed him in believer's baptism because that's obedience. Baptism and, and, and being a Christian all go together. And of course, thirdly, that the Lord's Supper brings to our minds really a reminder of, of what the Lord had to go through uh, to accomplish salvation, that he had to bear all our sin in his body, take the full wrath of God in our place, and to satisfy the justice of God completely, or we could not be saved. So we have to think of that when we partake of the Lord's table. These are really some basic truths from which our minds and hearts may stray from time to time, but the Lord's table brings us back to it. And then, of course, also the Lord's table uh, is a memorial feast, so it, it reminds us that we are to do this, it says, till he comes. So it's, it only, not only causes to us to look back at the cross and rejoice in our redemption and what Christ has done for us, and it's complete and total and, and uh, nothing else has to be added to it, but also we turn around and we look to the future. And the future is that Christ is coming again. He's coming, and we ought to rejoice at the prospect of seeing Christ face to face. That's why godliness is not only profitable for now, it's profitable for the age to come. So it's worthy of our pursuit. So just think of that for a moment, and I'll come back and read the scriptures. Take a few moments to examine yourself, prepare yourself to take the Lord's table, and then I'll read the scripture that goes with that.